All right, so thank you everyone tonight for joining us. Tonight I am live with Mr. Ryan Pauley. Ryan graduated with a bachelor's in religion and emphasis in youth leadership from Vanguard University in Southern California. After graduating, he became a missionary in the Dominican Republic and he taught English worldview apologetics. And then when he came back, he started studying some more. He started Coffee House Questions, his apologetics website. And tonight we're just gonna talk a little bit about his time as a missionary in apologetics. So thank you so much for coming on tonight, Ryan. Thank you so much, Zach. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, definitely. So I guess to kick things off, I'm just kind of curious, maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe your family background, how you were raised and how that kind of led to you. Um, yeah, just kind of like you're up to high school or through high school. Yeah, I mean, so I was raised in a Christian home. Um, my parents are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. And it goes back quite a ways. And so definitely a huge blessing as far as uh, really being in a family that loves God and uh, wants to keep him center. Uh, when I was pretty young, my family actually kind of helped plant a church. And so the church that I mostly grew up in is a church that my parents, as well as a few other families, uh, came together and planted the church, grew the church. My mom was a pastor there, uh, associate pastor there for 14 years. And so that had a huge impact and role in my life, obviously, as uh, kind of working through that and um, and just really being raised there and uh, with that huge impact in my life. And obviously with aunts and uncles and grandparents and everything. So it was really cool. Um, cool things that kind of looking back, I kind of see is that uh, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. Then the church that my parents started was kind of a non-denominational church. And then I ended up going to a charismatic high school uh, and then a Pentecostal university. And so it was kind of really cool just in the in those years of seeing very different aspects of Christianity. I remember having a lot of conversations with my mom and my parents uh, trying to figure out, OK, like, here's what they said they're kind of doing here. You know, what do you believe? Trying to figure out what I believe. And I just remember those conversations starting very early uh, in high school and college of really wrestling through like, okay, I'm seeing some very different things here, just in kind of the different worlds uh, I've grown up in. And so, yeah, that's my story and kind of how I've grown up and, and really the impact of, of really growing up in that solid Christian family. So when would you say that you came to Christ? Well, I, I'm one of those born and raised Christian students that doesn't really have a date. Um, my mom tells me is when I was eight years old, I was at some camp or something and uh, I went down in front and with tears and gave my life to Christ. I don't remember that. Um, so I don't have this like day I can point back to and say, that's when I became a believer. I always point to, I mean, I was baptized at about 12 I took Christianity seriously through school, but I just remember these points in my life where Christianity just was blown to another level. So, I mean, I grew up in church, did that whole thing. Uh, I went to Vanguard University where I studied theology. And it was when I first got to Vanguard, my junior year of college, where I finally like realized like, oh my goodness, I know almost nothing. Like my classes that I'm in where we're talking about theology and we're talking about uh, different aspects of the New Old Testament, different books and things. And I'm like, and I don't know any of this stuff. And so that was just eye-opening to me thinking, wow, I've been born and raised in the church, obviously been taught a lot, but there's just so much more to know. And so that was a point I just remember of huge growth. Um, but then again, after graduating high uh, college, uh, about two years or so after I graduated, being exposed to apologetics and just again, my mind just blowing up and just going, oh my goodness, I did not know this existed. Where has this been? And again, now just absolutely blown away by what, who God is, how he has revealed himself to us. And so that's how I kind of look at my Christian walk is just being born and raised in it. I can't remember the day that I became a Christian. My mom tells me the story, but I know these specific points in my life where God just revealed himself. And I just saw a new aspect of him that I just went, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I want to learn more about this. So that's really what I kind of point to in my story. Yeah, that's a really great story. It's great to see your perseverance to the faith. Uh, would you say that you ever had like maybe like a time or a period where you kind of like phased away from your faith as you were growing up? Because I know that's very common now and it's probably always been where people just kind of aren't interested. Yeah, I mean, I think that happens with all high school, college students. 
I can't remember a time where I like walked away. I was just having this conversation with someone recently. Like I am one of the rare apologists. I think that I was born and raised in a Christian church. I was never challenged by an atheist professor. I didn't have this serious period of doubt where I did not believe in the existence of God. I was always very confident in my beliefs. Um, uh, but there definitely were times where I'm not living it out, obviously as, active as I would have hoped looking back. You know, there are times in high school where I, I didn't do devotions very often. Um, I stayed active in the church and I definitely would have said I believed in God, but it didn't affect my life maybe as much as I would have. But I, I definitely didn't have uh, a period of time in my life where I went through serious doubt, where I was challenged, where I really maybe doubted the existence of God, denied him or anything like that. Um, but really got into what I do now because of the need I saw in other people and the need they, they had uh, for having a defense and a foundation of what they believe and why they believe it. Yeah, that's a great, and I'm really excited to get into that. But before that, I'm curious. So you talked a little bit about how before you really got into more uh, coffee house questions, things like that, you were a missionary in the DR. So, hables espanol? Si, sí, yo hablo espanol. <laughs> that's about all the Spanish I remember from. <laughs> I just graduated. I'm about like, to keep going. <laughs> my mom's a spanish teacher so she knows a lot but i mean i know like oh it didn't rub places. off huh? what you it didn't rub off it wasn't you know no. learning by diffusion or something you know whatever that may be i i guess i got my dad's genes in that area i guess <laughs> so what led you to becoming a missionary in the dr that's really just a crazy story. Um, I was in school to be a youth pastor my degrees in religion and and youth leadership uh, thinking this is the way that I'm going to be working with high school students is through being a youth pastor, which is kind of funny because the church my parents planted was farther enough distance away from my house. I didn't really go to the youth group that often. Uh, it was just too much of a drive during the middle of the week. And so, you know, I was just thinking I'm going to influence students in the way that I think that's the best way and not necessarily the way that had been impacted for me. Um, but so as I'm just about ready to graduate, I, I'm, a, I'm applying for jobs. I'm looking for churches. I'm finding nothing. And I remember about a month before graduation, just crying out to God at a worship service and be like, God, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, it seems like this is what I, I, I've been studying the last few years to do this. It seems like this is where you want me, but it's just not working out right now. What, where do you want me? And I just really felt this call to missions um, of going overseas and doing something and I didn't know what that meant because this had never been on my mind before. And so I went and talked to one of my professors, uh, one of my professors of missiology. And I said, hey, I, I just I just kind of have this thought and I don't know what I, what I want to do with this. And he goes, well, you know, you can check this out. You can apply with this organization and, and see what kind of happens. And I said, OK, yeah, I'll check that out. And as I'm walking out of his office, another one of my professors stops me, doesn't know anything about the conversation I just had. And, and he goes, hey, have you ever thought about being a missionary in the Dominican Republic? And I'm like, no, why? He goes, well, they do baseball there. You are a college baseball player. I think that would be an awesome place. And I have a friend in the Dominican Republic you could do baseball ministry with. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. So I went home that day, applied to be a missionary in the Dominican Republic. And about a week later, the professor comes back and he goes, I'm so sorry. I made a big mistake. My friend's not in the Dominican Republic. He's in Nicaragua, but he says, don't go there. Go to the Dominican Republic instead. <laughs> and so I'm left applying to a country I've never been to before. I don't know anyone. And it was all because my professor made a mistake and saying, my friend's there. You should go. And also kind of not knowing that I had that conversation, kind of thinking, OK, maybe this is a way that God is kind of trying to speak. And so I ended up going. Uh, it took me a while because. Um, the initial response was we only have one opportunity and that's to teach at a Christian school. And I did not want to teach. And I said, no way, I'm not doing that. And they said, there's nothing else. And after about a month of saying, no, I'm not doing it. I finally said, okay, fine, I'll teach. And uh, they went, okay, well, we can't use you for four months, which is what I wanted to do. Minimum one year. I finally agreed to that. And well, that led to four years. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, wow, that's really, that's an amazing story. It's really cool to see how, God can work, you know, just from a professor's mistake. That's really, it's really awesome. Yeah. So what did you do in the DR? So my, I started out uh, in my, a few things kind of changed. So I started out my first year, all four years I did teach at uh, a Christian school there that was actually founded by uh, American missionaries, but it was a Dominican school with Dominican students. 
Um, I quickly started getting into the baseball world and started working with baseball players. And within my first year, I also kind of started a youth group at a small church that we had kind of been a part of planting. So I kind of started the youth pastor thing. I started the baseball thing, but I was also teaching at this Christian school. Towards the end of my first year, we helped plant a uh, uh, or actually, it was already in existence. There was a school that was started by a Haitian pastor for Haitian students because, you know, Haiti and the D Dominican Republic are on the same island. And there's a lot of Haitian refugees in the Dominican Republic. And so uh, a Haitian pastor had started an after school program for these for these kids. And the reason is, is because either one, uh, they're too poor to go to public school or two, it's a very, it's not a very good relationship between Dominicans and Haitians. And so if they can get into school, if they have that kind of money or anything, uh, they're not treated very well. And so a lot of the Haitian kids just simply don't go to school. So he had this program for them and needed some help. And so towards the end of my first year, the missionary that I was working underneath uh, partnered with this guy and we helped build uh, a little shack um, of a school uh, so that these kids could have a permanent place uh, for them to have classes. And so it was actually after that first year when I decided to go back to the country that I created my own nonprofit organization called Transition Ministry that I could work underneath and have a little bit more freedom. And I started a sponsorship program for this school. And so uh, kind of like Compassion International, I had people uh, donating to, to send uh, one of these students to school so they could get their education. And what this led to was um, I, I had a partnership for three years, the rest of my time in the country. And we ended up building them a brand new school building, not a shack, a huge concrete structure with four classrooms, a full kitchen. Uh, church was planted there as well for the community. And we had, a when I left, about 60 students at the school. And so my job was uh, the sponsorships for these 60 students. Uh, also, uh, we fed them a hot meal every day. So every Monday, I would go buy groceries to feed 60 kids a day for five days a week. I'd drop them off in the kitchen, and we had a cook that would cook all the food. And then I would also teach at the Christian school that I was a part of. And so that uh, was a kind of a core that I taught the whole time I was there. But the main thing that changed was I went from kind of the youth leadership and uh, baseball ministry to really taking on um, this ha Haitian school and, and running that sponsorship program. And uh, when I left, uh, between me and the other missionaries that we all kind of worked together, I think there were like 10 different Haitian schools that we were in charge of. And that number has grown dramatically. There's still a huge increase. They kind of took over the school when I left. And I think it's up to like 15 or 20 schools now. Uh, that are being run and supported by um, by people in the United States. So these kids can go to school. And so that was kind of my main work. And then obviously during the summers, a lot of mission teams come down. And so working with uh, mission teams, painting, construction, translating, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really great stuff. So wait, I might have missed this, but were the Haitian schools, were they in Haiti or were they in the DR? They're in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Yeah. So what was the, I'm just interested in this, what was the, the Dominicans response to having a bunch of Haitians like in their, you know, like in their country. I would say that the response is very similar to people in our country. Um, and you kind of get some mixed results of like, Hey, they're here. Um, but it's probably not the best, right? It's not kind of where our country is going of trying to make things better for immigrants. Uh, it's really like, you shouldn't be in our country, get out, uh, people trying to, you know, call on their neighbor, trying to get them deported, uh, just some pretty crazy stuff that happens. And so it's definitely not good. But then at the same time, similar is that the Haitians are doing a lot of the jobs that the Dominicans don't want to do. And so you kind of have that mix of like, you can't just deport them all. Um, and I remember that even when I was there, there, there even a, um, a rule came out of saying, we're going to start deporting every single Haitian. And I think some higher up like UN or something actually came down and said, you guys can't do this. Uh, you can't just single out one people group and say, you're going to just deport them all. You have to say that of everyone who's illegal in your country. So I remember getting messages saying, hey, if your paperwork is not up to date, you risk being deported because now the country's saying we're deporting anyone who's illegal. And so uh, it was definitely not a, a friendly environment, um, but you definitely found some Dominicans. Our cook was a Domin is, is still there. Uh, and she's a Dominican lady and just absolutely wonderful. And so obviously there are some good partnerships, uh, some good uh, love and, and care and compassion, but overall probably not the best uh, relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always a, it's a sticky situation and always in terms of immigration, but I think 
it's sad to see when we as Christians can't, it's, it's really good to be welcoming as Christians. So it's really sad to yeah. see, but I mean, obviously there's more than, you know, the surface. So what caused, maybe just talk about your transition, like leaving the DR and then kind of getting towards where you are today, maybe a little bit. Yeah. So I, my transition, I went down for four months. Uh, well, that was my initial request, which turned into one year. At the end of one year, I said, okay, I'll do one more year. That turned into two. At the end of that, I said, okay, I'll do two more. And so the way, the way that the missionaries I worked with, um, they, what they would do is four years in the country and one year out to re-raise support and remake, you know, reconnect with all their supporters. And they go back for four years. And so I said, hey, after the end of these two years, that'll be four years for me. I'll at least go back for one year to kind of reconnect with all my supporters. But um, at the three and a half year mark, I remember getting back in the country and having just this overwhelming feeling of your time is done. And that's really what I was praying for was, God, just help me know when I'm supposed to be done. I don't need your voice saying, Ryan, you are now done, but just help me in some way know. And when I got back in the country, I just knew my time here is up. And it was about that time that I really got really plugged in with apologetics. And I mean, I had started earlier and I started looking into Biola's apologetic program and just realizing I want to be back uh, in California. And I want to I want to continue my uh, degree and I want to pursue this aspect and just knew that that's where God was kind of taking me. And so it was kind of crazy because um, I, I couldn't just move to California without a job. And so I got into the bio a program, but I didn't have a job. So I was planning to do the distance version, just go back to Colorado, live with my parents. And through some crazy stuff, God opened some doors. I got my teaching job out here, which I still have. And now I've been here. Uh, four years. I just finished my fourth year at the school. So um, yeah, just an overwhelming sense of peace. Just, Hey, your time is done. Time to move on and pursue the next thing. And I just know that God has been in it. Yeah, that's really great to hear. So what do you teach now? And like, who do you teach to? I have a very unique situation. So I teach three classes. I teach a uh, historical Christian doctrine and apologetics class. Uh, I teach a um, philosophy of ethics class, and I also teach, um, what is it? Comparative religions and worldviews. Uh, so those are my three classes I teach. My unique thing is that I teach at a Christian school. So obviously I'm teaching theology and apologetics and, and worldview and ethics, uh, but it's also, it's an international Christian school. And so my school is 70 to 80% uh, international students from China. Most of those students are not Christians. And so I actually get to do theology and apologetics and Christian ethics and comparative religions with mostly non-Christian students and you know, make the case for Christianity. And so that's kind of part of the really cool prayer is that I was praying and just saying, God, I really want to do apologetics to non-Christian high school students, but I have no idea how this would ever happen because when are you going to get a bunch of non-Christian high school kids to come listen to a lecture on apologetics? That's just not going to take place. Yeah. So in the meantime, I'll take this job at this Christian school and that will give me an income so I can kind of figure out how I'm going to do my apologetics ministry. And in the interview, the first thing, one of the first things the principal said was, I want to let you know, teaching Bible here is very hard because most of our students are not Christian. And I said, I will take the job. And so yeah, it's about 70% non-Christian students, and it has been awesome. It's so much fun just opening their eyes to the truth of Christianity in a way that they've never heard before. Uh, so that's kind of what I teach, who I teach it to. And so I actually teach um, uh, 10th through 12th grade, so uh, sophomores, yeah. juniors, and seniors. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not a teacher, but I can share in your experience because I went to a small Christian high school as well. And we have, because I live in like the Penn State University area, we have a lot of international students as well, like kids from mostly China, a little bit of Korea, Vietnam, and they all grow up probably very similar to your students in very atheistic households. So I think it's very, it's really cool to see their growth. I mean, there was a, there's one, there's been numerous kids that have come to Christ in our school. There was one girl who got baptized right after graduation, which is really cool to see. So, I mean, yeah, the fruit is really amazing to see in with international students. Absolutely. And, and one of my international students will be at Penn State this fall, um, is a Christian, strong, loved the apologetic aspect of my classes. And so he'll be going out there. And so maybe uh, we'll connect and maybe get some resources for him and places that he can connect to. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Yeah, I know some local, I mean, I'm not going to Penn State, but I know some local yeah. like, good campus ministries there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we talked a little bit about your 
you teach these views, but what was the cause that led to your deeper dive into apologetics? What really made you want to research these things? For me, it was the research that I had done seeing the amount of students leaving the faith. And so when I started transition ministry, uh, the actual, the foundation of that was uh, helping students transition well through life. And the conclusion that I had come to was that the reason why students are struggling in the transition from high school to college and college to kind of adult life or working world or whatever you want to call it, is that they don't truly understand what they believe and why they believe it. And so if I can help just give them a foundation of the tr Christian truth, what they believe, why they believe that, I, I believe that that would make the transition from high school, college, college to adult life uh, a better transition and with that firm foundation. The crazy part is, is that when I started that and even wrote that on my website, if this is the goal of my ministry of transition ministry, uh, I had no idea what apologetics was. And so it wasn't till later, actually, my brother who's in the Air Force was challenged by some of his Air Force buddies while flying. And he reached out to his high school Bible teacher and said, man, I received these objections. I don't know what to do with them. His high school teacher said, you need to watch some William Lane Craig videos uh, my brother started watching his debates against Sam Harris and sent it to me. And as soon as I watched, I went, oh my goodness, this is what I've been looking for. And uh, it turns out, you know, he's a research professor at Talbot School of Theology. And I went, where is that? And realized it was Biola. And I had played baseball against Biola while at uh, Vanguard University. They're in the same uh, baseball conference, or at least they were at that time. And so for me, it was seeing so many students are not transitioning well they're walking away from the faith. And I think it's because they truly don't understand their Christian faith and they don't believe and understand why. And so that was my goal to give them that why before I ever even knew what apologetics was. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so what do you think are some of the things these students don't understand? I mean, I think there's two different, the way I look at it, there's two different reasons people mainly leave the faith, whether it's an intellectual, they don't know the answers or emotional where they just don't want to be a Christian. So intellectually, why do you think, what are these questions that students don't have answers to? Well, I think there's also one more. I think it's volitional that they simply just don't want to. And that's what I get a lot from my students is, is I've, and I've talked about this on my podcast, but um, I, I had two students in the last couple of years uh, specifically that, that flat out told me, uh, if I admit that Christianity is true, that God exists, then I will have to stop doing the things that I want to do. And it was just a flat out like, I don't have any emotional thing against this. I just don't want to stop living my life of sin or the things that I want to do. Um, one guy said, I just don't want to believe in Christianity because it'll change my life and people will look at me differently. I'm like, yeah, they will and it will. Uh, but that's the good thing. That is the blessing and the beautiful thing of how Jesus transforms us. Uh, that's better than what you have now. Um, so I think that would be a third thing I would add into. But as far as intellectual, as far as what I've found is that there are the intellectual issues of mainly science is a big one. And so that's one thing I focus a lot on is the compatibility of science and faith. Another aspect is, is the intellectual issues of how do I intellectually and knowingly engage in the culture that I'm living in, right? And so a lot of the cultural ethical issues, the church has not provided students often with actual practical ways to respond and ways to intellectually think about the, the morality of these issues. And so for me, those are probably the two that I focus on is, is the, is the intellectual side of science and faith being compatible and then the ethical issues. But finally, I think one thing was eye opening is I recently did an interview uh, with John Marriott, Dr. John Marriott, uh, who wrote the book, a recipe for disaster. And what he talked about is more the fundamental, the underlying things that are causing people to walk away from the faith. And the first one he talks about is what is actually he calls being overprepared. And what he labels that as, as um, uh, giving students a version of Christianity where they have to accept too many uh, beliefs and, and too many aspects, uh, too much uh, than what Christianity requires. So for example, uh, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to uh, you can't play cards on Sunday. You can't do this. You can't go to the movies. You can't do this. You have to believe in a six-day, 24-hour uh, young earth creation view. You have to believe in a pre-trib, pre-rapture, pre-this, you know, amillennial dispensation. You know, you have to believe X, Y, Z. And if you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. And so, uh, and so it creates this intellectual, what he calls this house of cards, where you have a hundred core doctrines. And if you 
remove one of those, it comes tumbling down. And so what I have found is that part of that is the scientific aspect. And so when I talk with students and I, and I help them see that evolution, I think, fails on its own merits, that there's actually really good reasons to believe in creation. And I take the view that you can be an old earth creationist or a young earth creationist. You, it, both are possible, plausible options. When I say that, I see these students just this overwhelming sense of relief going, oh my goodness, I felt like I had to hold a one, two, three, four, five, all this stuff. And now that I realize like kind of that view of mere Christianity, like we can debate whether it's Calvinism, Arminianism, you don't have to be this one in order to be a Christian. And if you're an Arminian, you're going to hell or something like that. Uh, we don't have to debate those things. I see that as being a huge intellectual stumbling block where students go, okay, I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ, what's most important. I'm going to think critically about these other issues, but it's not core to the Christian faith. And someone who disagrees on the age of the earth or their view of eschatology, uh, that doesn't matter. And so I think that's a huge intellectual stumbling block that we often put in the way. Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, I think I've seen this, at least in my own experience, the idea that, I mean, I think that to be a Christian, it's pretty simple. You have to believe in Jesus as God that he rose from the dead and, you know, those basic things. And then we keep adding things that really are, like you said, things that are worth debating. So I think that's a really great take you have on that. So let's just talk, I want to talk a little bit on a general thing here. So the question of does God exist? Because I mean, this is one that we'll see a lot of debate with today. Um, so my question for you is a lot of people will say, like Richard Dawkins will say, science is buried God. So why do you believe in God? My short answer is that I believe in God because he is the best explanation for the way the world is. And so to me, what that means is that when I look at reality and I look at different aspects of reality, the, the existence of God explains those things best. And that without God, I don't see how they can be explained. Right. So this kind of falls into the three major arguments for God's existence. The argument based on the beginning of the universe, the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument based on design, which would be the design or the um, teleological argument, the fine tuning argument, and then finally morality and the moral argument. Um, going back, though, I, to what Dawkins says, I, it, it seems strange. And I kind of challenge students on this is if you're going to say that science is very God, science, by definition, only studies the natural world. Right. And so God, the Christian view of God is that God is supernatural. God is outside of this physical world. And so I don't even see how science could bury God. Um, it is very possible that, that God exists outside the physical world in which science is studying, which that's what the Christian view is. And so I also wouldn't then say we can use science to prove God's existence. Right. I think even William Lane Craig is very careful about this, is that we can use scientific evidences to support premises and philosophical arguments that have a theological significance, right? So that's a lot to say of, we can create philosophical arguments like the cosmological argument that everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe begins to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And then we use science to support the fact that everything that, or that the universe has a beginning. And we look at Big Bang cosmology. We look at the expansion of the universe. We look at the second law of thermodynamics. We can even look at philosophy and see the impossibility of an infinite regress, all to support the statement the universe had a beginning. And so if everything that has a beginning has a cause, and we have good scientific reason to believe that the universe had a beginning, then the universe needs a cause. And that cause has to transcend the universe. And so now we get a theological implication or, or theological significance to an argument using science. And so I think that's kind of how we can use science to point to the existence of God. And so I think if God doesn't exist, then I have a very hard time seeing how our universe came into existence because you have to have something that is not physical, outside of time, and outside of space. Because even Stephen Hawking said that almost all scientists now believe that all of time, space, and matter came into existence at the Big Bang. And so what is a timeless, spaceless, immaterial being who has the ability to create and is very powerful that exists outside of our physical world, right? That's what we mean when we say God. And so if that being doesn't exist, some transcendent being, I don't know how you get this physical world from nothing by nothing uncaused, so to speak, uh, or without a personal cause. 
Then I would say the same with the fine tuning arguments, right? We can look, use the scientific understanding that we have about our universe, of how planets form, about how all these things happen, about how the earth has to be in the perfect place to have a habitable planet, about the understanding we have of DNA and look at the design and see that design needs a designer. You wouldn't look at a book and say there's no author. You wouldn't look at a painting, say there's no painter, a building and say there's no architect or builder. Uh, we have this natural design intuition where we can look at things that are designed and understand it requires a designer. And I think that we can do the same with our universe. And again, if that designer doesn't get, doesn't exist, how do you explain the design that we see? And then, uh, unless yeah. you have a question to jump in, but then the moral argument, no, um, okay, cool. Um, which I think is extremely powerful. And, uh, I love just new thoughts that I have about this that I've kind of got from JP Moreland is, but this idea that we know that there's things that are actually wrong, right? And to deny this is is like denying the obvious. You know that 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 molesting children for fun is wrong. Like that is wrong, and we all know it. And I also know that nothing is ever going to change this. There's nothing in a hundred years that's going to come along that's going to make that a good thing. It's not. It it is wrong, and we have this understanding of it. And so the simple thing is that laws, moral laws, come from people. They come from individuals. You have to have a moral law giver. And I always use the example with students. And I was even just speaking with a group of students uh, this week at a summer class or summer camp. But it, it's if you have one team, if you have a sport and one team scores 95 points and the other team scores 90 points, who wins? Well, they often want to quickly say 95. And then someone always jumps in and says, well, unless you're playing golf, right? And so this idea that, you have to know what sport you are playing. You have to know by which rules you are playing to know if 95 or 90 is better, right? Should I throw the ball against the ground or should I hold it and run? Well, it depends on if you're playing football or you're playing basketball. And so there's going to be different actions that are good based on the rules of the game. And so when we look at that and take that same approach to the morality, do I punch you in the face or do I hug you? Well, we all say, well, yeah, hugging is better. Well, but why? What rule book are you playing? Are you playing? And what 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 rules are you following? What system has been set up that actually makes that better? Or is that simply just our opinion? And so when I look at that and I see that there are actually things that are wrong, it shows that there's actually a system been set in place, things that we should do. There are moral values and duties, things that you should and should not do. And that is best explained by a moral lawgiver. And so to me, those arguments are overwhelming. Now, I also jump into, I love the argument from consciousness that, uh, you know, even if you look at people like Daniel Dennett, who's an atheist philosopher or Sam Harris, they would believe in determinism. Daniel Dennett flat out says, there's a video on YouTube, uh, a big think series where he says that consciousness is an illusion. A consciousness is your brain playing tricks on you. It's like stage magic only um, oh, what's this statement? But it's like stage magic. It's just, it's just a trick that you're not actually a conscious being. And I think that that is the logical conclusion of atheism is that you, I don't think, and the reason why they're going there is that I don't think you can explain the fact that we are conscious beings who can think rationally and process intelligent information. If there is no God, you don't get that from molecules, uh, just molecules in motion over time evolving. And so uh, I think they take the logical conclusion. You're not conscious. I think that consciousness is self-evident. Uh, you know, were you conscious when you said that? And so uh, the fact that we can even make an argument for God's ex existence that is rational and understandable and be having this conversation, I think proves that there is an intelligence that created us to be able to give us these capabilities. And so uh, that's, I think, are just overwhelming things that you just look at reality and you go, man, a world with no God, this makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with you. So, I mean, we have all these arguments, I guess you could say for God's existence. So when you are talking with, let's say like one of your students, like day one and argue, not maybe not arguing, but with your um, students that are international girl that have grown up in households that don't believe in God, where do you start with in terms of introducing the concept that their idea that there is a creator behind everything? Well, I mean, it really is going to depend on what classes I'm teaching. Uh, so this year is a comparative uh, worldview class. And so, um, but like last year, uh, we start with our doctrine and apologetics. And so we start off 
a lot of times looking at the concept of, of truth, of, of what can we know, how do we go about understanding what is out there, and then starting to look at um, aspects of reality and the existence of God. And, and I think it's not hard for them, at least in the beginning, in the sense that they understand I'm in America, I'm going to a Christian school. I, they also don't get me first year. They don't normally get me for probably at least two years is generally when they first will get me because uh, depending on their English levels, when they come over, uh, a lot of them will go into our ELD program and they work their way through that. And then they come up into mainstream, but before they even get to me, they have to do freshman Bible, which is uh, a survey of biblical literature, kind of an old and new Testament survey. And so uh, they already have these understandings. They've been told about it. And so what's cool in my class is that when they come in, then in the apologetics and in the comparative religions class, we start to get into the why. Here's why we think actually Christianity stands out above other world religions. Here's why we think God actually exists. Here's why we think Jesus rose from the dead. And rather than kind of in the freshman class of just saying, hey, here's, and they do cover some of it, but covering more of here's what the Bible talks about. Here's what scripture says. So they kind of have that idea coming in. And I begin to start to give the why behind a lot of the what. And it's a blast because, I mean, we, I always ask them, like, we'll go through the evidence for the resurrection over a, a couple days and I get done and say, hey, what do you guys think about that? Have you ever heard about this before? And most of them will say, I've never heard this before. I had no idea that you could actually had historical evidence that would support a resurrection. And so that to me is the coolest is when you can able to give them these things that they've never heard. Or, or I, uh, my first year teaching, I spent two weeks on creation and evolution. And one kid at the beginning said, there is no good reason to believe in creation. It is absolutely ridiculous. And we spent two weeks looking at both. And at the end, he said, you know, I actually think that there's some good reason to, to believe in creation. And, you know, just because he never heard it before. And they'll flat out tell me, yeah, we don't talk about this. We know nothing about Christianity in China. And uh, so it's all new information. And so that's really cool of not only being able to give them new information, but really give them the why behind it that really challenges them to think differently than they have ever thought before. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that's got to be a really exciting job just getting to talk with those people about things like that. So we talked about, you talked about these arguments for God. Now with new atheism, I think this has come up a lot. The idea that they're going to say, hey, I mean, I'm not saying that there is no God. I just lack a belief in God. So unless you can, they'll say, you know, an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. So uh, give yeah. me the proof that God exists, you know, and then maybe I'll yeah. believe in God. So how would you engage with someone whose mindset is like that? Well, first of all, I think both of those statements are, are just false. And, and there's two things is one extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. No, they don't. Um, I, I can make the extraordinary claim that I won the lottery. That's a one in whatever, 10 million chance. That's very rare. But all I have to do is produce one little piece of paper with the right numbers on it. And that is evidence that I actually won. Uh, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, what what do we need in order to show that someone actually died and rose from the dead? Well, you need them alive, you need them to die, and you need them alive again, right? And if all I can show you is that Jesus was alive, existed, actually died, and was actually dead, not just fainted or passed out or something, but then was actually alive again, then we have a resurrection. And so we don't need a massive amount of somehow extraordinary evidence, which often is, oh, well, what do you mean by extraordinary evidence? Well, often seems to kind of always be above what you can actually give. Um, but that's not what we need. We, it's very simple to show that someone rose from the dead. You just need those three things and good reason to believe each of those points. Now, if someone comes along and says, well, I don't, uh, I don't have a positive belief that God doesn't exist. I simply lack a belief. Well, I'm going to probably have a few questions, but if it's someone like Dawkins, it seems weird that he would write books on his lack of belief. Right. If you don't have a belief about something, you're not writing books. He's actually writing books, making positive statements about the way the world is. Here's what it is. And it may not be necessarily on the existence of God. But if you read things, you know, uh, from these authors, they're going to write about how God is not great. Right? This Christian view of God is not great. Probably doesn't exist. Uh, naturalism is true. Maybe materialism is true. You know, Sam Harris talks about how determinism is true. And so they are making positive statements about a whole lot. But when we simply want to define something as a lack of belief. Well, that, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot because a lot of things lack beliefs. Um, and so then I'll respond with a question. Okay. You say that you simply lack a belief. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to make a statement and you respond. God exists. Would you say true, false, or I don't know? 
And maybe they're going to tell me I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that that's a very simple way of saying, look, you do have a belief. And for you to try to say, well, I lack one just so you don't have a burden of proof in this conversation we're happening that we're having, that's that's not fair. You're obviously coming against me. So are you going to say, yes, God does exist. No, he does not. Or I don't know. You have theism, atheism, agnosticism. And so I think that's just a little word game. And I've written a couple articles on my website about this. I think it's a word game that's played that uh, maybe gets them out of, you know, uh, away from conversations with some people. But I don't think that that is simply false. Uh, they are out there, a lot of them, or I think it is simply false, that they're out there, a lot of them, arguing with Christians, trying to show how Christianity is false, uh, trying to show how it's ridiculous, writing books, tweeting on Twitter, putting out posts, blog articles, trying to show that Christianity is not true. They are advocating for something. And they may not say, well, I can't prove God exists. Okay, or he doesn't exist. Okay, in the same way I could say I can't prove God exists. I can give very good reasons um, that I believe he does. Uh, but yeah, 100% certainty is not necessary for knowledge. And so I'm not 100% certain. Maybe you're not, but let's not play that little word game. What do we actually believe? And let's have this conversation. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, like, I think like my parents love me, but I mean, I can't prove that, you know, there's no like formula for that, you know? So it's very yeah. similar thing that you have to prove something is really, it can be a very dangerous game if you want to play it with things outside of just God. Yeah. So why my next question for you is we talked a lot about why we believe God exists. Now you can say if God exists, we could say that, you know, Islam is true or that deism is true. Like it, uh, Judaism, Christianity, like there's all these monotheistic, uh, ideas. So why do you believe that Christianity is, has the right beliefs about who God really is? Yeah. So for me, I take the progression that a lot of people take and the nat next natural step is the resurrection of Jesus. Um, as we just talked about, I think that there's overwhelming evidence that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead. If you look at the four main facts that I present in my cases of uh, that Jesus died on the cross, the tomb was empty. The disciples believed or claimed that they had seen the risen Jesus and the lives of Peter, James, Paul, and other disciples were absolutely transformed. And so I think that when you look at the naturalistic explanations of, you know, it's the wrong tomb or move body or stolen body or hallucination theory and twin theory and swoon theory and all these different theories, I think that what makes the most sense, if you do not have a naturalistic bias saying that I only believe the natural explanation, uh, which would automatically exclude resurrection, um, if you have resurrection, a supernatural explanation on the table as a possibility, that it does fit the evidence perfectly. All the others have mistakes, have errors. And so when you look at that, the resurrection of Jesus, I think beyond a doubt shows that what Jesus claimed was true. He predicted his resurrection. He came back from the dead, uh, told us what it's like. First Corinthians 15 goes into those details of here's what Jesus did. He died, was buried. He was raised. He appeared to these people. Here's what it means if the resurrection is not true. Christianity's nonsense, walk away. But the resurrection is true. This means you will be risen. And now death has been defeated. How amazing this is going to be. And so for me, it comes down to that. Now, obviously, on a side note, I think as we go back, I think I understand the truth of Scripture and the truth of Christianity, the reliability of the Bible and these things. Uh, but Paul hangs Christianity on the resurrection. So I think that's a great place to put it. But at the same time, in my talks that I give on why Jesus is the only way, I go through and I have reasons also why I think the other religions are false. And so it's not just this closed-minded, here's my view, and this is just what I believe, and I just think the resurrection makes sense. But I have reasons why I think that Islam actually is false, and why Mormonism is false, and why these other views and, and these kind of Eastern religious views actually don't make sense. And so I think it's kind of a both, you know, a two-ended approach where Christianity not only fits well, these other religions either don't have evidential support, they have logical or internal contradictions, or they redefined reality to try to fit themselves, all of which would, I think, falsify religion. Christianity doesn't do any of those. So it stands up, I think, in two ways, overwhelmingly above the rest. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. So I want to go back a little bit to the resurrection here, because I agree with you in that the resurrection is the most uh, important question that we should probably answer. I mean, it's definitely is for Christianity. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it's the, Christianity is the most important thing. If not, then what we're doing here is meaningless. So yeah. talk about these, what Gary Habermas calls the minimal facts. But I know that there's a lot of skeptics who will say, hey, you know, the only people that really say these things are 
in the Bible, you know, like they'll say like, you know, Josephus is corrupted. We all know that things like that. So how would you establish like, Hey, we can establish most likely the tomb was empty or like, Hey, you know, we know that Jesus actually died on the cross, things like that. Well, I mean, so we have to look at some of the statements that are made and is, has Josephus been corrupted? Most likely. Yeah. But we also probably know what was corrupted about Josephus and so that we can remove those parts and look at what we agree and, and believe to actually be the uncorrupted parts of Josephus. And you still get aspects of Jesus in that. And so one thing I, I think is often a mistake from the very beginning is we have to say, well, you need to prove outside of the Bible that Jesus did these things. Well, why are the historical documents, the four independent historical documents, including the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why are those not sufficient? Well, they're Christians. Yes. And I remember I had a student even once of saying, I want non-Christians. I said, well, non-Christians saying what? I want a non-Christian who says that Jesus rose from the dead. I said, you know, I don't think there are any out there. And here's why. If you lived at this time and you saw Jesus die and raise from the dead, I think you're going to become a Christian. Right. And Jay Warner Wallace kind of talks about this even as well of, of it's like saying uh, your eyewitness, uh, your eyewitness of a bank robber. And you say, I identify this robber. They're the bank robber. Well, of course you believe they robbed the bank because you, you know, and it's like, we, we only want to trust people that don't actually believe that they're the bank robber that says that they're the bank robber. Well, the reason I believe the person robbed the bank is that I saw it. I have good reason to believe it. And so now I'm a believer in them, so to speak. And so it's like, well, I want to find a person who doesn't believe in them that will give me the same information. I don't think that exists. So I don't know if that made sense, but it's simply the idea of why the reason why the writers of the Gospels believe are, are Christians is because this is what they saw, right? That's what Paul even tells us is, is, you know, Paul goes from a persecutor of Christians to a Christian because of seeing the risen Jesus. And so other people who actually saw for their own eyes the risen Jesus, of course, they're going to be Christian. And it's not what I would say is an unhealthy bias where you're going against the evidence. This is you're, you're believing it because of actual things that have taken place and happened to you. And therefore, that is why you are what you are. But at the same time, to satisfy people, we can provide outside sources, right? So we do have Tacitus. We do have Josephus. We have uh, Marbar Serapian. I, I always say his name wrong, but something of that sort, right? We have, I think, 12 independent non-Christian sources that mention aspects of Jesus, his death, his crucifixion, his miracle workings, and these sort of things. And so it's not true to say all we have are Christian testimony. We have overwhelming Christian and non-Christian testimony uh, regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you did a great job summing everything up there. <laughs> kind of, I keep thinking of questions like, "Oh no, we can't really ask that." So, I mean, you did a great job. I mean, Thanks. so there's a few questions in like our live chat. You want to go through those before we wrap up here? Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. All right. Um, there's a guy Abdurrahim says, "I'm a Muslim and I'm studying the Bible in terms of theology, doctrine, and textual textual criticism." So, what would you? recommend maybe in terms of literature wise for him to read if he really wants to study those things for textual criticism. Oh man. Um, I cannot think of the book off the top of my head and it's probably not sitting on my bookshelf right here behind me. Um, I think I have it in the other room. I cannot think of it. But the works of Oh, now I'm blanking on this one too. My goodness. Live questions. The work of uh, Daniel Wallace, right? Probably the leading uh, Christian textual critic um, manuscripts guy uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And so if you go there, um, some awesome work. I'll also try to figure out what that book was that I'm trying to think about um, from a class that I took. But anyways, Daniel Wallace is a great resource uh, as far as textual criticism. Yeah, I agree with you completely. He's really good. There's actually some, I think there's maybe just one, but there's a debate with him and Bart Ehrman, which is really a good debate to if you really want to see both sides on the textual criticism debate. Uh, look in here. See, there's an, uh, another live question. I just totally missed it. Um, yes, it's the same guy. He said, uh, did Moses believe in the Trinity? If so, why didn't they teach the Trinity to the people of Israel, the children of Israel? 
I mean, I obviously don't know everything that Moses believed. I don't think there's anything in the Old Testament that hints at that. Uh, so I would say probably not. We don't have, and looking back, we can see aspects of the Trinity um, within the Old Testament, but I probably would say that, no, I don't think that they were Trinitarian in their beliefs. Why not? I don't know why God didn't reveal himself fully at that point. Um, a lot of these questions of why didn't God do this this way? I don't know. Most questions that start with why didn't God, the answer is I don't know. What we do know is how did God reveal himself? He reveals himself as creator, as, as the protector of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, as their king, uh, as their ruler, as Lord. And then in the New Testament, we, we see the person of Jesus Christ come and God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove at baptism, and then the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. And so I don't know why God decided to reveal himself in the way that he did in that progressive way. But again, um, I don't think that just because, I don't know if this is the argument being made, so sorry if it's off, but just because Moses did not believe in the Trinity does not mean the Trinity is not there. Uh, we can look at scripture throughout the Old and New Testament, and I think that we clearly see it taught that, um, that Jesus is God, that the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They're not three individual distinct gods. They are one, there's only one God. And so they're all equally divine. They're co-eternal. So um, not sure if that's where he's going, but I would say Moses didn't. But again, we don't know what Mo Moses believed. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you pretty similar. I mean, I think if you look in Moses' shoes, when he's with God, he only sees God the Father because like God the Son, Jesus, hasn't come to the earth. and He won't for another 1,500 years in the time of Moses. And then the Holy Spirit, I mean, I think there's there's some really David Wood has some good stuff about the Trinity in the New Testament on YouTube if you want to look at that. But I mean, if you look at it, the Holy Spirit really comes into play after Jesus's death. So I mean, these aspects of the Trinity just weren't there at the time of Moses, at least present in present and active in the lives of those people. So I think that Moses really wouldn't have a reason to believe. That doesn't make it false, obviously, like yeah. you said, Ryan. Um, so I think that's all the questions really that we have here. So I think my last question for you is, is so apologetics can be very academic. You know, there's a lot of arguments and studies and research and things like that. So how do you keep your personal intimate relationship with God as you're going through all these things? That's a great question. I, I, I addressed that even a little bit this morning as I left the students up at summer camp, the way that it works in my mind is this, is that my theory is that when you don't know very much about something, you're going to get quickly bored with it. And so that to me is like art. I don't get art. I don't understand why lines on a piece of paper that make no shape whatsoever is awesome. And so I go to art galleries and I just don't get it and I'm bored. But someone who truly appreciates art is going to go in there, going to see all this postmodern art and different stuff. They go, whoa, no, but look at this. Look at the shading. Look at the brush marks. Look at this. And they have this passion because they truly understand it. Right? The Women's World Cup is going on right now. I don't get soccer. It doesn't make sense to me. You run around, kick a ball, and maybe you get three goals. Like To me, that's not interesting. I get bored so fast because I, I don't know it. I, I don't understand it. But for me, I grew up playing baseball. I can sit there and watch a pitcher throw and I'm fascinated by the way that he throws and the way that he can get the ball to move because I understand how hard it is to get the ball to do certain things where someone else who knows nothing about baseball is going to say, <clears throat> he just threw the ball at the guy and then the guy swung and hit it. Like they don't get it. Right. And the same is true of hockey. And so I shared the story of my wife uh, when we first started dating, she had never been into hockey and didn't get it and got easily bored with it. But as she sat down and learned the intellectual aspect of what each whistle, why the whistle is being blown, uh, why did they try to do this? Why did they do this? Why did they do this? And when she started learning the ins and outs and the rules of hockey, she began to be able to follow the game that then led to not just sitting there and kind of watching it because I want to watch it, but now actually truly enjoying it, learning the guy's names, recognizing them and being excited about it and wanting to go to games with me. And so the way that I relate that to Christianity is this. When you don't have an understanding and a knowledge of who God is, who Jesus is, what Christianity is all about, I think that you can get easily bored with it, right? Students will sit there and talk for hours and hours and hours about Fortnite and video games and sports and all these things that they love and movies because they truly get it and it's a passion for them because they understand it. And I think the reason why they get bored with Christianity easily is because we keep saying the same few things over and over and over again. And they, I mean, I had one student 
flat out told me I've been a Christian for two years and I know everything. And she wasn't being like cocky or anything like that. I think it was a genuine statement that she, after two years, she's already been on repeat of the things that she's been hearing. And so my understanding and what has happened in my life is this, is that when I study the intellectual aspect of apologetics, when I see how God is involved in nature, in the beginning of the universe, in physics, in uh, cosmology, in astronomy, when I see how God is in biology and the design and in the moral system in which we are to live, and then how that plays out in the in ethical implications of decisions that we make. And even what I try to encourage my students with of like, man, if you want to get into like programming, I mean, imagine ethical issues of self-driving cars now. Of if you're stuck on a road and and you have to either hit the cat or you have to hit the old person or you know whatever you're gonna do like who what how do you program the car of which way to drive which way to turn, these are issues that have massive implications on the ethical system you hold to, which is part of your worldview, and so for me and this is a long answer to your question but for me. When I study the intellectual side and I truly understand these aspects of God, of Jesus Christ, of Christianity, of how he's revealed himself to us, my mind just explodes and I go, whoa, that is so cool. I want to know more about this. And I have this more passion. And so then it's like hockey where because I understand the intellectual and how the game works, I truly enjoy watching it. And so I think the same is true if I understand how God works works in, an, in a limited way, in the way only way that we can. Uh, but now I truly enjoy studying him. I truly enjoy having that time with him because of this deeper knowledge of who he is. And I mean, lastly, it's like I compare it to a marriage, right? Where my grandparents have been married for a long time. I don't think they're bored with each other and they spend every day together, right? And there's this deep knowledge of the other person to where they truly have this loving, long-term committed relationship. And man, if you don't know very much about someone, you can get bored very easily talking with them, right? That deeper knowledge of who they are and who they, how they, what makes them tick and all this kind of stuff drives that passion to be with them. And so for me, the, the, I'm not an emotional person. I think maybe a lot of apologists maybe aren't, but uh, it, the emotional passionate aspect comes from truly understanding God, seeing how God is involved in every aspect of my life, that he just makes it possible that we can even have this conversation that blows my mind. I want to learn more about that and grow closer to this God that created me that way. Yeah. I mean, I think you did a great job putting that there. I mean, I think the more we study God, obviously, the more we can just really develop a passion for him. So there's, I have one more question. There's one more question that just popped up if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. I got time. Okay, sweet. So the question is, uh, how do you argue for the supernatural nature, the message of the Bible and the spirit against people who have no belief in the supernatural? Well, I'm probably not going to argue for the supernatural aspect of the Bible if the person doesn't believe anything supernatural. So if what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to God, right? And so I think kind of the progression that it takes is, is there truth? Okay, we agree that there's truth. Okay, now let's say, does God exist? And if I can show, as I talked about earlier, from the existence of consciousness, from the moral law that we, uh, structures that we follow, from design in our bodies, as well as uh, fine tuning in, the, in, in outer space and in our galaxies, as well as uh, the beginning of the universe, I think the beginning of the universe points to an external supernatural being right? It, it, is, it transcends our physical universe. And so if I think we can make a strong case for the existence of God, you now have supernatural, right? And, and, you know, you can look, and then you kind of get to the Bible and you say, well, does this God speak? Has he spoken to us? And then you look at the supernatural aspects. Once you believe in the supernatural, then you look at the supernatural aspects of scripture. But when you ask, you know, what is the greatest miracle ever done? I think the answer is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God can create an entire universe out of nothing, ex nihilo, by his divine power, if the first verse of Genesis that he created the heavens and the earth is true, then every other thing is at least possible. Then he can make a donkey talk and he can make someone walk on water and he can rise someone from the dead. And so I think that first verse is huge in saying, is there a supernatural being? Well, if Genesis 1.1 is true, Yes, there is a supernatural world, and we have very good scientific reasons to support arguments that show that that God does exist. So I would go yeah. back to God, and then yeah. 
does that God speak to us? I agree with you. Yeah, completely. Because I mean, if someone doesn't believe the supernatural, then they'll never accept any supernatural claim, yet alone yeah, exactly. the Bible. So I think um, that's everything we have here. I really appreciate you coming on tonight, Ryan. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Absolutely, Zach. Thank you for asking me. This is a blast. I love what you're doing, uh, as I think I mentioned, but no one else heard. I thought you were a senior in college doing this. You're Man, you're not even in college. That just blows my mind. I want more students to be like you in doing whatever they can to promote apologetics and theology and make a defense for Christianity. And I love it. And I'm so happy to be here with you, Zach. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, it's really nice. We always can use more apologists. So yeah. I just want to encourage everyone that follow Ryan on Twitter. We have his website, his blog, Coffee House Questions, and his YouTube channel in the description. So I'd encourage you to check Ryan out. And then you can follow us. You can see our Twitter page, our blog. If you want to follow us, you can support us on Patreon or anything like that. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. And we will see you. We'll probably be live Friday night. We have a video uploading tomorrow. So we'll see you. And thank you, everyone, for listening in tonight. Big questions need good answers.